one of the pivots that I had in law school was, boy, elementary school teaching is really hard. Uh, people would say, oh, it's so hard to be in law school. I go, try being an elementary school teacher. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, yeah. is that is hard. That is hard. Welcome to Callings, a podcast of NetView, the network for vocation in undergraduate education, featuring conversations on college, career, and a life well lived. I'm Erin Van Lanningham. And I'm John Barton. And we invite you to explore with us and our guests what vocation means both personally and collectively, and how discerning purpose is central to a meaningful life. We are happy and honored to welcome as our guest today, Shirley Hookstra, who serves as the president of the CCCU, which is the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities, which is a consortium of nearly 200 member institutions in 21 countries that represent 55 different Christian denominations. Shirley is a lawyer by training and before working in higher education, spent many years as a litigator in Connecticut. But in 1999, she returned to her alma mater and NetView member institution, Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where she served as the vice president of student life until 2014, when she became the seventh president of the CCCU. Shirley is known as a visionary leader who's passionate about Christian higher education and the role it plays for the common good. She's received a number of leadership awards for her work. And as president of the CCCU, she has actively worked toward expanding diversity and inclusion on Christian college campuses and making higher education more accessible and affordable. She's also been an advocate for increasing education opportunities for incarcerated individuals and supporting undocumented students as they seek to complete their education. And there are many other things we could mention, some of which we'll be able to touch on in this interview, but for now... Shirley, thank you so much for your time and welcome to Callings. It is terrific to be here with you. I'm such an admirer of NetView and all the work that you've done. So what a privilege to have this conversation. Well, thanks. To get started, can you share with us a piece of your own vocational story? How did you come to do the work you do? Were there particular crossroads, epiphanies, or setbacks that were influential? Well, I always say that there's nothing wasted in God's economy. And so if you think about your vocation story is really God's story being lived out in your life, then you have to say, well, even the the worst point uh, in a vocation story probably has something for you then and later. So I, I became an elementary school teacher right out of college, and I, I taught in a very small rural area, and the elementary school was so small. K through six, that it had a fifth and sixth grade split, which means that I had half fifth graders and half sixth graders. But what the most wonderful thing about that experience was, is that I learned immediately after college that you have responsibility for others. I had all these 30 students, their parents were paying tuition in order to go to this little school. They had auctions uh, in order to bring down the cost of tuition. It all mattered. And I knew that I was responsible for these young lives. I think that when you graduate from college, you're not always aware that your work is going to impact so directly others. It was a wonderful lesson. And I remained an elementary school teacher for three years before I transitioned up to New Haven, Connecticut, and ultimately went to law school. 
And one of the pivots that I had in law school was, boy, elementary school teaching is really hard. Uh, people would say, oh, it's so hard to be in law school. I go, try being an elementary school teacher. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that is yeah. hard. That is hard. So in law school, that was the first time I had actually been in a secular surrounding for education. So I had done K through 12 uh, myself in Christian schools, and then I had done a Christian college. So here I was at University of Connecticut, and it was my first foray into how to be a Christian in a secular spot, to be winsome, uh, to be clear, to not throw around theology, but to throw, when people ask a question, to explain why Jesus was important in my life. That's what they wanted to know. They didn't want to know the theology. They would kind of like, why would a smart person have a real interest in their religion? So that was a pivotal moment, and it was really a good uh, learning experience for me. I had such great peers at UConn Law School, and I, I was involved with a number of different things, from clinics to uh, the moot court board to being a TA. And I would really recommend that kind of educational experience where you have to test the things that you just thought was implicit for everybody. Mm. Yeah, that's a great advice about having to sort of test pieces of your identity in different circumstances and uh, arenas. I'm wondering about these shifts in your professional vocational life. As John noted in his introduction, you've shifted from law to higher ed, and you've even now talked about you know starting out as an elementary school teacher. What can you share about vocational discernment and decision-making? What has helped you know when to shift or when to take a new pathway? That is such a great question because that's what we're asking our whole life, isn't it? Right. We're saying like, when when am I supposed to move? Is this is this restlessness something I should be paying attention to, or is it boredom, or can I reinvest in the place I'm at, or shall I try uh, something new? So um, I always say take heed of restlessness. And I get the advice of others to say, do you think I'm using all the gifts and talents that I have? The pivot from going from a law partner in a very prestigious litigation firm in New Haven, Connecticut, we represented the governor, we represented uh, high profile people, we represented poor people, we represented business folks that were in trouble. It was just such a great place to work. But then I felt this I would call it a prompting. I was serving as a volunteer on the board of Calvin University, and there was an opening for the vice president for student life. And I certainly didn't think I was qualified to be the vice president for student life. Uh, but as a board member, I was really promoting the fact that we should have a good gender balance on the cabinet. And because two of the women vice presidents had left, I was really advocating to make sure that we took seriously the gender balance on cabinet. So I go home from a meeting. I'm sitting in my living room in New Haven, Connecticut. And I, I just really hear, a, I just have a, a prompt that says, well, what about you? And I'm like, I don't think so. This is, this is the wrong number. You know, <laughs> if, if you're asking me to think about a complete pivot in my vocation, I'm not uh, really interested. But um, as a person of faith, I had learned that you really have to take those kinds of uh, nudgings, promptings, seriously. And I did. And I actually thought that I would apply and get turned down. And therefore, I would have been obedient, basically. 
to a prompting that I thought was a Holy Spirit prompting. Now, as you know from my story, they said, yes, why don't you come and take the job? And that was a that was a very big pivot that was actually quite hard and rewarding at the same time. They called your bluff, huh? <laughs> they did. They did. I'm like, I'm not. Actually, they had such a small pool of people for that position. That's why I got yeah, the job. Right. It was like, oh, my gosh, if we, we got to take her. She's, you know, uh, anyway. But it was very hard to make that pivot from law to higher ed. And when you did, I'm assuming you started to find some new giftedness that you had or some some new passions or some new parts of your own personality that started to emerge in that process? Yeah, that's that's a good observation, John. So many people know the strengths finder, where natural talent plus practice equals a strength. And so when I was a litigator, I was practicing particular talents. But then when I got into higher education, boy, I, I just really love the broad opportunities that are represented on a college campus. I love the opportunity to put particular experiences together for the well-being of students and others. I loved actually taking the things that I had learned like uh, in law and applying them to our judicial code, making sure that due process was really followed and that we had good investigations, that we uh, treated students fairly. And I had great colleagues in all of this. So what happened was, and maybe maybe your listeners are familiar with the Strengths Finder, you know, you, your top 10 are pretty stable, but they might shift. And that's what happened for me, my top five. Two remained my top five, but then three others sort of emerged into that as I was able to really develop others' talents through practice, making them strengths. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. And you're, we're kind of talking now about your work in higher education. And, and obviously, that's what we focus on in this podcast, we, we, especially undergraduate education and educators and students. And in many ways, as president of the CCCU now, uh, you are a leader of leaders in the world of higher education, and you you oversee and you guide many institutions. And with that in mind, I'm curious if you can share a little bit about your philosophy of leadership. And I'm I'm thinking here both kind of in general, like uh, in general, how do you understand leadership and servant leadership? And then even more specifically in terms of uh, your leadership of the CCCU specifically, and how you might understand vocational development in that uh, how, and how it relates to higher ed. Well, I appreciate that question, John, because at this stage in my career, uh, I have thought a lot about what motivates me as a leader and what I might be remembered for as a leader. And so I'm going to use some what I just call phrases or mantras for that. They might be memorable and you know, your listeners might also resonate with them. Uh, the first one is uh, lead by example. So I, I don't think you can be a leader today and ask things of your colleagues, your constituents, your followers without leading by example. So if you want people to be thorough, if you want people to be compassionate, if you want people to be generous, kind, uh, hardworking, uh, you have to be actually out in front doing that. And uh, people will, and especially students, they will see the hypocrisy of saying one thing and doing something else. You, faculty, staff, administrators, you are under a microscope. Do you do what you say you want others to do? So, and I always said in student life, don't make a rule you can't enforce. 
I mean, for goodness sakes, if you can't enforce it, you got to think about a way in which to get the result. A second one that I would say is avoid the appearance of impropriety. This is about cutting corners or only one-time justifications. I think that leaders have to be above reproach if they can. They're not perfect. They're not perfect. But they should, again, set that standard where, let's just take a very simple thing, what you're going to claim as an expense. Is this something that you could say, oh, it could be, I don't know, could be. Or do you say, you know, if it, if it could be, but it's not clear it is, then I'm not going to even have the appearance of impropriety. That's a small example, but it actually functions through your, your whole workday life. Um, and then this is a, just a funny one, but uh, it's, it's always been very important. And I would say this to students and I would say it to people who want to move up the ranks. Uh, you got to look the part. Look the part of the role that you would like to have. And so um, I'll just say I'm, I'm certainly biased about a less casual look for leaders. I think that leaders need to set a standard for students and for others to say, do I have confidence that this leader that has the financial acumen, that has the interpersonal acumen, that can read a room, and that comes in with a sense of authority because you're expected to be a leader. And, and there, there is a difference, by the way, between men and women in this. Women are not given the automatic sense of authority, even after all these years. I almost always have a suit coat on. Uh, men don't always have to have a suit coat on. Uh, and I just don't want to, I don't want to undercut my chances. I always want to be the best from day one. Uh, but that being said, you got to give that some thought, uh, especially if you have a long game of stewarding your leadership capacity to its fullest. In so much of your work, Shirley, it's apparent that you value building collaborations and alliances. I'm wondering if you can share perspectives on that as a priority and the difficulties as well as rewards of that work. Perhaps you even have tools or strategies you can talk about in terms of how to build collaborations and alliances around difficult issues. Yeah. Well, I think it's absolutely necessary today. I think that it's one of the things that higher education can do well is to model building alliances instead of focusing on uh, being in your corner or polarization. So getting things done effectively and efficiently means that you cannot be a solo player. I just got done uh, reading the book, James A. Baker, The Man Who Ran Washington. It's a, it's a fascinating book by Peter Baker and now Susan Glasser, both of the New York Times. And it's it takes place in a world that's very different today politically. But James A. Baker, the Secretary of State, the Chief of Staff, the Secretary of the Treasurer, et cetera, knew how to build alliances because he did not expect 100% purity around alliance belief. It was where is the common ground? And with that comes two things, generosity of spirit and less fear and more trust. So generosity of spirit and less fear and more trust. Because if you're going to build alliances where you can work on some things and not on all things, you have to know that, yeah, people will push back. People might mischaracterize. Uh, you know, if people want to throw stones, there's a way to throw stones. However, 
results matter and the results will be your defense. The idea of establishing common ground, do you have an example of actually doing that in a particular setting, either in your current role or in a previous role? Mm. Well, two of my favorite examples of building common ground, uh, the first is with Interfaith America. So Ibu mm. Patel uh, came, we met at a common meeting where there was a lot of overlap with leaders of uh, faith-related organizations. And I was struck by Ibu Patel's generosity, his conviction, and his kindness towards other people's point of view. In fact, Ibu Patel, when one of our institutions back in 2016 was running into some difficulty, made a public statement that was for the autonomy of religious belief and the validity of religious belief. Now, he was talking about Christianity, but he was applying his own uh, values to another group of people, and I was so impressed. And so, uh, hence, uh, the CCCU and Interfaith America have really partnered on some wonderful opportunities like Faith in the Vaccine, which was a program that we did during COVID. We've done other programs where we've created joint materials where people, by studying the faith of someone else, actually learns their faith commitments even better. So I have really come to love and respect our work with Interfaith America and Ibu in particular. So, and then the other work that we've done is try to find common cause on the LGBTQ issues. So the CCCU members are individuals uh, that have a traditional belief in human sexuality, and yet we live in America where there are different points of view about how you can express that and what your civil rights might be. So the CCCU and other religious liberty partners were very instrumental in helping to shape the Religious Liberty Amendments to the Respect for Marriage Act. Now, I might be getting a little bit in the weeds here, but the Respect for Marriage Act was just passed by Congress, and it's the first bill that had religious liberty language and LGBTQ civil rights in the same bill. And that was such a milestone, and it happened really because we have very trustworthy LGBTQ partners and they were very and are very respectful of our religious beliefs that actually they disagree with. Mm. Yeah, great examples. Yeah, yeah, thank you for those examples. And I, I remember in the podcast, I listened to the podcast that you did with Ibu on Interfaith America, I think mm-hmm. a couple months ago, and would recommend that to, to anyone else as well. It was a great conversation. And what I heard on that podcast and what I hear you saying now as well, and, and uh, if if this is if this is accurate, is that you see part of your leadership and part of what you would like to help CCCCU institutions is be a voice for American pluralism. Uh, is that is that the way you would say it? And can you elaborate on that a bit? That's very well said. I think that faith based or Christian higher education should be interested in the messiest possible problems. Right? We should have the least fear. We should have the most confidence. And then, you know, just think about all the ways in which the Bible says, you know, practice the fruit of the Spirit, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering. All of those things really lend itself to this pluralism and the, the ability to bring people together. 
I also think that institutional autonomy is never going to just be a guarantee. This is a really important principle for American higher education, which is institutional autonomy. Well, we have a lot of different kinds of institutions. Faith-based institutions need to have others that say, hey, they're worthy of their institutional autonomy. And I want to be able to say, as a person that heads up a faith-based organization, you're worthy of your autonomy. Be your best in the calling that you have, speaking of vocation. An institution has a vocational calling. Be your best at that. And you actually need people to value the unique, distinctive nature of different expressions. Yeah, and I would assume that also speaks to even the diversity within the CCCU itself. Christian institutions with maybe you would say a core set of of Christian commitments, and yet quite a bit of, of variety and diversity among those institutional callings. Is, is, that, is that how you would say that? We really try to model respect for each other. And then I just say like the benefit of the doubt or the most generous explanation. Right. So if you hear about something that happens on another person's campus, uh, it probably is one tenth of what actually happened. And then instead of coming to condemnation, you say, well, what could be the most generous explanation? Like what what might I not know about this situation? Could I pick up the phone and find out about what what happened? And maybe they could tell me more. Maybe they could tell me more. Um, And I would say that 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 is across the board the truth in life, right? Uh, give the most generous explanation. As you said, we have many, many different denominations, and I am so proud of our presidents in our institutions because they really work across the board with the NCAA, the NAIA, the independent colleges and universities uh, that they partner with with so many things that they work with very a lot of different partners in their city, their state. And what you would always want to say, and I'm coming, of course, from a faith-based perspective, you always want a Christian on your team. Like that would be the highest compliment. You always want a Christian on your team. Why? Because they just bring a posture, hopefully, of humility, openness, curiosity, generosity. So that's that's what I'm hoping to foster as the CCCU head. Yeah, I I appreciate that. And I also that also makes me wonder or think a little bit more about what that might look like. I mean, obviously it will look different at different kinds of institutions, but what that looks like on the ground. And and I know you've said before that uh Christian colleges should be places where people can ask hard questions and wrestle with hard issues, and that's kind of what you're talking about here. And I, I'm wondering what does that what does that look like on the ground, especially given the fact that we live in such contentious and polarized times? How does that, how is that worked out and lived out on campuses? Well, interesting, you know, the, the Nessie data, I think your audience would understand that. The Nessie data actually proves that on actually CCCU campuses have classrooms with the most diverse points of view. Now, isn't that interesting? I think that uh, some people think if you're a religious college, it's more like indoctrination, you know, than a uh, diverse conversation. And in fact, that's not true because I, I think that there is a foundation. If you can have a, a foundation where you know you are comfortable, then you can actually explore. I'll just call it like an analogy. You can, you can go from 
uh, you've got your base of operation, you can go and explore the different islands of thought, knowing that you can always come back uh, to where you feel comfortable and confident. Uh, so I think classroom discussions prepare students to be able to engage um, other points of view. I think that's really important. Some other places where I see this happening is the free speech issues. So I think that there is an expectation, I would hope, on in higher education broadly, and certainly I can only speak for the faith-based organizations that I represent. I would hope that no one would be shouted down or made to feel so uncomfortable because that would be in really direct opposition to a higher principle, which is love God and love your neighbor, right? So let's say your neighbor, neighbor is like really off base with a point of view, but they're on your campus. The last thing you would say is we're going to like really move them off because of a point of view that they've had. It would just be antithetical. Yeah, so kind of creating those hospitable spaces for uh, for that kind of freedom of speech and thought and wrestling. H- how do you, uh, maybe one more side of that, as a person of faith and as a leader in of faith-based institutions, how do you think of that in terms of discussions of faith and learning, like the academic intellectual pursuits and faith commitments and how they relate to one another? Let me say that all of this takes courage. Right. So just think about the, you know, when you would have conversations uh, just around Israel and Palestine, Hamas, and uh, I mean, all of those kind of conversations, you have to have courage to allow opposing points of view to be talked about. And you have to have the courage of great moderation. You can, it's not a free for all. It's not without boundaries, but it takes a certain courage in order to stand in that space of high contention. Now, faith and doubt, you know, ride the same rails. And so I believe that in the best of circumstances, you can withstand real doubt from your students, from others, without, again, capitulating to fear. And that's not easy to not capitulate to fear. Or, I mean, look at being canceled. That's a real thing. Being threatened, that's a real thing. And there, I would say that there has to be a nexus of community. You can't be courageous without community. Uh, You cannot uh, stand in contentious spaces without community. So to the extent that higher education can really concentrate and be intentional about building community so that contention and courage can go side by side. That's worthy. And it teaches our students because they're getting into a world where it's all contention, right? And they need, they need deep moral courage. Yeah, these courageous conversations in these spaces of contention that you're describing are absolutely the thing that we are preparing students to navigate. And I've admired, as I was preparing for this interview, reading about your commitment as an advocate for students affected by the DACA program, Mm -hmm. as well as other underserved and vulnerable populations. And I'm wondering how you think educators and 
colleges and universities need to serve and plan for such populations to succeed. Yeah, I I love the DACA students, Deferred Action Plan students. I mean, they come with oh, such grateful hearts. They come with such a deep desire to learn and to conquer, overcome. They're inspirational and they are handicapped because of this legal situation in their lives. So number one, I really think that colleges and universities have to be more involved with where the action is, which is in the legislature. Like Congress can change this. The courts have said that the executive branch is limited in changing this. They've ruled that time and time again. And look, there are solutions to this. It, it just means that legislators have to have the courage to say, yeah, we got a problem. We didn't make it, but we got to own it, right? That's always the situation. We didn't create this problem, but we have to own it in order to, to solve it. And uh, again, there are legislators in Congress that want to propose good legal immigration reform. And we as citizens really can influence that. And you can't imagine, unless you're in the work like I am, how much letters, phone calls, emails really make a difference to legislators. It gives them courage. Mm -hmm. Because remember, they can get voted out. Like it's a real consequence for them to be on what is the wrong side of something. But uh, those students that we have on our campuses are worthy of our defense and advancing. Just to follow up, the idea of how we individually as educators or institutionally how we serve and plan for any of our more vulnerable students to succeed. Do you have particular boots on the ground kind of strategies that have worked or that you've seen help those students flourish on campuses? You know, they really need to be known and seen. I think that that's how students flourish. Are there people who really know them and who they can trust and talk about what is really in front of them, the hard piece that's in front of them. And it doesn't have to just be a, a DACA student. We have so many students who are vulnerable. They could have food insecurity. They could have mm -hmm. um, financial insecurity. They could have real difficulties at home. They could uh, be young parents. But they have to have people that will slow down enough in the rush of life, faculties, peers, administrators, that they can be truly known. And so that when they are at an edge they don't just fall off, but there are people who are their safety net. I know you've done work, and I even read it in your in your intro. I wonder if you can add to that some of the things that you care about, that you think about, that you've worked for for incarcerated individuals and and uh, and educational opportunities for them. Oh my goodness, this is like my passion place. Imagine a soapbox, and now I'm <laughs> stepping yeah, onto welcome. it. Okay. So prison education gives back to the institution 10 times what it gives to prisoners, and it gives prisoners a lot. So there's a wonderful new movie out. It's called Behind the Walls. It's uh, produced by Nathan Rules, R-O-E-L-S. And it is about five inmates who are able to be part of a prison education program. It happens to be Calvin University. They talk about the prison that they are in, Hanlon Prison in, and when they first came, it was known as the Gladiator Prison. Now, that means that it was tough to stay alive. You could be injured. It was all about force, might, and power. Six or seven years ago, the educational opportunities came about, and it has transformed 
the particular wing in which they are residing, that 80% of the misconducts have been reduced. Mm. Now, this gives this gives people hope. And it's a, it's a couple of the inmates say, we hadn't been to school like until from sixth grade, and we thought they'd go easy on us, and they didn't. They're reading Plato and Socrates, and they're reading the, the New West Moor. They're reading really great, great books, theology, history, sociology, psychology. They're, they're talking about race in the prison, which they said, you know, no one wants to do that, but you can if, it, if your class grade is required. Mm-hmm. So here's what it is. It takes people who are hopeless and really dead to self, and they are resurrected in this life because they have meaning and purpose. One man said, I thought I was stupid, but I know now I'm smart. And then he had this reflection, what would my life have been like if this had happened to me when I was, you know, 10, 11, or 12? What it, and he's 41 now, and he has a lifetime yet to go in prison. People's, ah, oh, I can't, I gotta go on. So I want in the United States, a college for every prison. And now we have Second Chance Pell. So there's $7,000 for every prisoner who's enrolled in your program. And they deserve to have top-notch education. Not education light, but top-notch education. They are critical thinkers. They are empathetic. They, they do learn about um, reflection on their life and the life in which they're at. And they can make a difference. Anyway, sold out. So sold out for, for prison education. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, well, your your passion is obvious. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I'm wondering, just vocationally, is that a passion that you developed after coming to the CCCU? Or is this a reflection back on some of your lawyer days? Or is it kind of both? Or how, how did that develop in you? Oh, that's such a good question, John. I think it was, um, I know the justice system, and so I'm not naive about the injustice in the justice system. And I'm not, I'm very aware that if you don't have a good education, if you don't have all of the supports when you're little, and, you know, prison may be on your horizon just because of your circumstances, your zip code. And so, I think that if higher education can come in and reverse this small ecosystem, we all want better early childhood education. We all want, you know, more quality for students, but we can't always control that, but we can control whether we start a program in a prison. And by the way, the $7,000 are not going to cover your costs. Mm -hmm. And so the school then, the institution then has to say, not only is it worth having two-thirds of our costs covered, but we will place institutional above other things in order to assist the least of these. It's just a phenomenal thing. Yeah. That really resonates to, you know, the whole call of the university and the the call of us collectively, what our what our common cause is, right? To educate for society and all citizens. So it's a really um, beautiful way that you're talking about it. And I think convicting for us to consider what our mission is in higher education, generally speaking. Surely I'd like to close by asking if you have additional advice you would offer to our listeners, especially 
for young adults or college students as they think about their education and their future in our world? Oh, that's such a great question. I love students. I, I've always loved students from my days as a vice president for student life. I fell in love with students' potential and their passions about things and their hard work, their visions for a future. So two things. Number one, I would say to students, if you have a chance to volunteer throughout your whole life, it is going to add a dimension to your career that you could not predict. So you may have an opportunity. I did. I, I helped start a Bridgeport rescue mission in Connecticut. Mm. This was a drug treatment, alcohol, homelessness. And to this day, I still have opportunities to be connected with uh, those kinds of services for individuals who don't have homes or are in, in a bad way. I volunteered for that. Volunteered to be on a board, which actually led to my first job in higher education. And then um, I was a volunteer at the CCCU for just oodles and oodles of things. I mean, these are non-paying things. You just give back to your community. And it led to this incredible job that I have where I feel I'm using all my gifts and talents in ways that excite me. The second thing that I would say, I notice a lot of college students today worrying about their future in ways that, you know, it's just not worth your time. And here's what I mean by that. You can't predict your future. All you can do is predict your first job or you can be really a participant, a contributor, and then let's see what comes next. So I use this phrase. I would love them to trust more, to risk more, and to worry less. To trust more, to risk more, and to worry less. And from my vantage point as a person within the faith-based community, I think God says, look, I have got things for you to do. All I want you to do is be faithful, to be a person of integrity. I'll equip you in the things that you are not able to do. So just trust that. And then I would I would want students to risk more uh, so that their lives are big and not small. And then I look back on my 45 years that I thought I would never have guessed from an elementary school teacher to a lawyer to a vice president of student life to a leader of a higher ed association in Washington, D.C. I couldn't have predicted it. So I, I should have worried a whole lot less. Mm. Well, Shirley, your, uh, your passion for what you do and for the importance of education is contagious. Um, and your, your wisdom is, is both helpful and inspiring. And we really do appreciate you giving us your time and your thoughts today. Thank you very much. Well, you're so kind to let me come and have a conversation with you. And so, Aaron and John, thank you for your work and for what you're doing for our community in higher education. I am astonished by the way that NetView has made such an impact over these years. Listening to a leader like Shirley Hoogstra is such a delight because she's calling all of us in higher education to action, but also with a generous and insightful mindset. I absolutely loved when she was talking about the messy problems that we all need to stand in and her idea that we need to stand in these spaces of high contention and the difficulties of that and preparing students to do the same was such a 
convicting call, but also was, she was speaking with such insight and experience and also encouragement to take on those messy problems. Yeah. And not just individuals learning how to stand within messy problems, Mm -hmm. but even institutions. I told her this uh, in the episode, but just found her passion contagious for Mm -hmm. uh, wanting higher ed to be a major player in serving underserved and underrepresented students as well as incarcerated individuals. And for higher ed to to step into those kind of societal messy spaces and difficult spaces uh, and to make a difference in them. I thought, I thought that was very compelling. Yeah. Yeah. And then her own personal story of vocational discernment and how she kind of learned to listen to the restlessness, um, her advice to take heed of those restless moments where maybe those are doors opening or maybe indicators that a shift needs to happen. I thought that was really sage advice. Right. And to take risks. Um, um, yeah. I mean, she, at, at one point she mentioned her advice to students was to, to trust more, to worry less, to take risks. Mm-hmm. And she models that. Callings is hosted by NetView, the network for vocation and undergraduate education an association of over 300 colleges and universities in the U.S. and Canada. NetView is administered by the Council of Independent Colleges and is funded through member dues and generous support from Lilly Endowment Incorporated. Your hosts were John Barton and Aaron Van Lanningham. The editor and assistant producer for the episode was Marion Edwards, and our music was composed by Dan Kennedy. You can find our library of podcasts at netview.buzzsprout.com. Additional resources can be found at NetView's blog, vocationmatters.org, and at the NetView program page at the Council of Independent Colleges website, www.cic.edu.